This is Sophie Wilson. You are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Okay, welcome to the episode 63 of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Happy New Year. It's 2022. So today I'm going to read the first half of my audiobook of COVID Road Trip and RV Adventure. So I wrote this book because I was not able to return to the slow boat, which was in New Caledonia in the summer of 2020. We bought a, a small travel trailer. Uh, I think it was, it's like 14 feet. It's a teardrop, the new camp, very tiny. Uh, we've got, you can see pictures of it on the the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel. We actually have the complete audiobook up there. I think we're going to break this up into two podcast episodes, though. Uh, so you might have to wait a month to hear the second half of the story here on the podcast platforms. But on YouTube, you can watch it all and hear it all, uh, the audiobook. And of course, if you prefer to read stuff, uh, then Amazon is the place to go because there's the paperback edition and the kindle edition but those are not free but we are giving away the audiobook here on the slow boat sailing podcast for free also the slow boat sailing youtube channel so you know uh the i'll get into this in the book but obviously rv travel is especially in the united states is not very regulated so unlike the craziness they have in australia you know you can go across state lines no problem here in the united states for the most part and uh, it's a it's a big country and there's a lot of beautiful things to see and we got to see a lot of the beautiful parts of the 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 west and and southwest united states in covid road trip so i hope you enjoy the reading I'll talk to you on the other side. COVID Road Trip and RV Adventure by Linus Wilson. Copyright 2021. Ox River Publishing. All rights reserved. Ox River Publishing is a division of Vermilion Advisory Services, LLC. Narrated by Linus Wilson. Production copyright Linus Wilson. Ox River Publishing, Vermilion Advisory Services, 2021. Chapter 1. A Reluctant RV Traveler. COVID-19 changed what I thought was possible. I could not envision a cessation of international commercial airline travel. It had never happened. I could not imagine United States governors closing businesses and schools by fiat. It was unconstitutional and contrary to the basic principles of little r Republican governments. It all happened. Never had the government society or the economy been sacrificed to the narrow worldview of epidemiologists or virologists. The views of selected lionized virologists and epidemiologists were allowed to dominate all aspects of people's lives. This is not to say that COVID-19 was not a deadly pandemic. It has killed over half a million Americans at the time of writing and was the second leading cause of death in the United States in 2020 after heart disease because it edged out cancer. COVID-19 was used to justify massive government power grab and economic shutdowns that disproportionately pushed women out of the workforce and stole a year of education and socialization from a substantial proportion of children and young adults. 
When I went on my road trip, there was no vaccine or proven treatment for COVID-19. I believe the approved COVID-19 vaccines are a blessing of modern technology. I encourage all readers to get one, to hasten their return to normality, as well to protect themselves and the lives of the people they care about. Despite my distaste for the anti-democratic policies brought on for COVID-19, I generally did practice social distancing washed my hands frequently, or used hand sanitizer, and wore a mask when near people, as I was told to during the trip. There were other dictatorial edicts which violated the Constitution and were never endorsed by any state legislatures that I might have ignored in my travels by RV in the summer of 2020. My daughter Sophie and I were confined to the house for months in the spring 2020. Even my wife Jana, a physician, started doing remote visits from home. I exercised and went to the grocery store. We ordered takeout from the local restaurants. Most people followed the stay-at-home orders for the first month or so. By the time my classes ended, most residents of our hometown seemed fed up with the governor's illegal orders and traffic jams resumed in Lafayette, Louisiana. I shared the wonderlust of my fellow residents of Louisiana. I was fed up with COVID-19 justified dictatorships cropping up in all 50 states and most foreign nations. I wanted to leave home. The least regulated form of travel was RV. I was forced to teach my courses remotely for the first time in spring 2020. My experience as a video creator on YouTube with millions of views meant that I knew how to create effective video lectures. One student described my video lecture series as seamless, and the comments for that term were glowing. Nevertheless, I spent four times more time teaching, and I believe remote learning is far inferior to in-person instruction. I have evidence from the fall 2020 term that academic dishonesty was on the rise among my college students. When my tests were moved to in-person in spring 2021, average test grades fell substantially from their lofty heights in the fully remote fall 2020 term. My daughter Sophie, who was in third grade, was forced into remote instruction. We hired a tutor because Sophie was not equipped prior to the pandemic to sort through emailed assignments and connect to Skype and Zoom. Most kids were not so lucky and fell way behind during the pandemic. When remote instruction ended, Sophie never missed a beat and did better than ever. Many primary students were not so lucky and 2020 to 2021 were lost years for many American school children. Thankfully, her school moved to full day, five day a week instruction in the 2020 to 2021 school year. Many American children were not so fortunate. I have been sailing around the world since 2006 during the months of May to August during my summer breaks. The beginning of that trip is in my book, Slow Boat to Cuba. An outline of my part-time around the world plan is in how to sail around the world part-time. We went on our first international trip on the 31-foot on-deck island packet sailboat in 2015, detailed in Slow Boat to the Bahamas. I sailed the boat into Numia, New Caledonia, in June 2019. I hauled it out in a boatyard in the capital of the French Overseas Territory, which is 700 miles east of Australia, in July 2019. I last visited the boat on the hard in January 2020. Then, while I was interviewing volunteer crew in March 2020, the world changed. The borders closed indefinitely. My flights 
for May 2020 were canceled, my boat and the round-the-world trip were inaccessible. All flights were shut down to New Caledonia, and passenger boats were banned. This was a devastating blow to me. At the time of writing, the border of New Caledonia will not be reopened to tourism, and commercial flights will not resume until October 31st, 2021. If I wanted to travel, USA only travel was my only option. Owning two large sailboats was not really considered. Boats are very needy and expensive. I was already exhausted from the maintenance from one sailboat. Also, boat travel, even within the USA, is much more regulated than by road. There are dozens, if not thousands, of roads you can choose in the USA on any given day. On a sailboat, you could reach one or two ports if you got up early. Ironically, the open water is much more confining than it looks. That is why circumnavigators often stop in almost the same ports. There just are few reasonable ports for a sailboat to go to. Janet and I decided to buy an RV. Chapter 2. Money can buy me an RV and a Jeep to pull it. We purchased a new Camp 320S on May 16, 2020 for about $20,000. This was after a couple of weeks of negotiations for the trailer and my search for the appropriate tow vehicle. I settled on a Jeep Wrangler Unlimited as its tow vehicle. The Wrangler Unlimited had a 3,500-pound towing capacity. The new camp Tab 320S weighed less than 2,000 pounds wet. I liked the Wrangler look. It had more internal storage and maneuverability than a truck. The new camp Tab 320S was a 15-foot-long teardrop trailer that was 7-foot, 9-inch tall, leaving 3 inches to spare when getting into the garage. I did not want to pay for storage. The New Camp Tab 320S had a shower, toilet, sink, AC, heat, hot water, and two propane burners. The only other camper that I found that fit our criteria was the small Scamp, but it was on back order until 2021. We certainly could have gotten a bigger trailer for the same price, but that was not what we wanted. I did not want to have to pay for storage for who knows how many years for the RV, and I did not see the trip as it's three months and done. Of course, heavier trailers also mean bigger gas bills too. I owned my Mini Cooper for 15 years and I plan to own the RV for several years. The 2020 Jeep Wrangler Unlimited search was complicated by my desire to get the base model Sport, which is a stick shift. A Wrangler Unlimited can cost two times more than the base manufacturer's suggested retail price if you get one with all the bells and whistles. The nearest one was in a small town in Texas. I picked it up a few days before the new Camp 320S. In retrospect, my local dealer could have probably arranged the transfer for the same price. Unfortunately, our salesman, like other salesmen that I talked to subsequently, were not interested in selling the base model. The MSRP was about 30000 for the Jeep Wrangler Unlimited Sport, and I paid pretty close to that plus tax. I sold the 2005 Mini Cooper for $2,000. Soon after picking up the Jeep, I listed the Mini on Craigslist, and it sold within a day. It looked great and had low miles and ran great. I spent a few days getting a hitch installed. You can't get a tow package on the base model, and there were few stick shift Jeeps nationwide, such that there were none set up for towing. A local dealership installed the hitch and electrical connections for the fall. We got an adjustable mount to better balance the trailer since we were not 100% sure of the height 
In the end, the new Camp 320S was about three inches lower than my hitch. The Jeep dealership could not install an internal control for the trailer brakes. They suggested getting a Kurt Echo, which is inserted between the seven pin electrical connection and is remote controlled through an app. I use my spare unlocked phone for the manual trailer braking, which I almost never use. The extra phone needed a visible mount. The sticker mounts came unstuck. I had an air vent mount that held better, but often fell to the passenger side floor. I'm currently using a 12 volt mount, but that is about as reliable as a vent mount. Any truck stop will give you about four different options. Jana, Sophie, and I all drove to Jacksonville, Florida on a long weekend to pick up the travel trailer. At the time, the elected Florida dictator, Governor Ron DeSantis, was banning visitors from states and Louisiana residents had been targeted for bans more often than not. When we crossed the border, we were forced to get off. We needed to sign a statement on penalty of jail and fines that we would quarantine for 14 days. We refused to sign and said we would turn around. They said the only way to turn around was to go to the next exit. We went to the next exit and kept driving to Jacksonville. We picked up the trailer and stayed in an $88 per night RV resort nearby. The next day, we arrived in Lafayette, Louisiana. We struggled getting the RV up our sloped driveway. There was not enough room to back up the RV straight, and with our total lack of experience with backup cameras or trailers, it took hours. The trailer was too heavy in reverse and two-wheel drive on that slope, and the clutch smoked. I found that using four-wheel drive low was much more effective. On the next day, I took the Jeep into the dealership, and they said they could not find anything wrong. Almost a year later, I got a letter saying that my Jeep Wrangler Unlimited was to be recalled because clutches were bursting into flames. Unfortunately, Jeep had no fix for this recall, and you could not get it fixed. Thus, you could only stop driving it while waiting for Jeep to devise a solution. That was not helpful. Unfortunately, that did not pause my car payments or the need to drive. The smoking clutch has happened a few more times with lots of starts and stops with the trailer in reverse. I wanted to park overnight for free, which is often called boondocking, but worried about my electrical needs. I bought my third Honda 2000 watt generator. The other two quiet and portable generators were on my boat in New Caledonia. I wanted to mount it on the trailer in front of the propane and battery compartment. I found a four-wheel wheelered basket that I bolted onto the trailer in the front just behind the jack. It worked perfectly and I had room for two two-gallon gas cans. This added 70 pounds to the 200 pound tongue weight. Since the Jeep could handle 350 pound tongue weight, this posed no problem. Chapter three, camping in Louisiana. The first weekend back, Jan and Sophie and I took the travel trailer for a shakedown cruise to a state park close to New Orleans. Google Maps dropped us on the pothole ridden streets of the Big Easy on our way to the St. Bart Bernard State Park. We got there just in time to turn on the air conditioner and on full blast and join the Zoom wedding party for Jana's youngest sister, Diana. Diana had been quarantined for 14 days, so just her parents and her fiancé, Mike's parents, could attend in person. The ceremony was officiated by the groom's sister, who took a quickie course that was accepted by the state of Wisconsin. All the rest of the family, besides the maid of honor, honor, Jana's sister, Christina, attended remotely. Life went on with the COVID restrictions, but it could have been better 
if Diana had an in-person wedding. We all were made to sacrifice in 2020. Nobody got sick, thankfully. We were overrun by bugs on the One Mile Nature Trail of the St. Bernard State Park. Getting close to the nature in Louisiana in May was painful. Prior to that weekend, I joined Harvest Host, which is a membership where you can park your RV at wineries, farms, museums, and other places of interest with a reservation. I booked a couple of days in a winery in Louisiana and Texas for the next week. When we drove back to Lafayette, I used my Harvest Host membership to park the trailer overnight at Vermilionville Museum and Cultural Center in town to avoid pushing the trailer up my driveway. At the time, it made sense since I'd never tested reversing in four-wheel drive, and I did not know how well it would work. Further, I was still learning about backing a trailer, and our driveway was a hard test for a rookie. I drove back home for the final night before the big trip. I drove the nearly 200 miles to Landry Vineyard in northern Louisiana on my first leg of the big RV trip. My two-year-old toy poodle, Avery, was my only companion. He rode in the passenger seat. My RV trip was in part inspired by the nonfiction memoir, Travel with Charlie by John Steinbeck, the author of fiction classics of Mice and Men and the Grapes of Wrath. Steinbeck wrote of his RV trip with his dog Charlie in his truck bed camper. This was Avery's first big trip with me, but he had gone on all our car trips and most of our plane trips too. Our previous toy poodle, the departed daily, joined me for many of my sailing trips before he died, including a cruise of the Gulf Coast of the Bahamas, a cruise of French Polynesia, and sailing from New Orleans through the Panama Canal to Ecuador. At one gas stop, I failed to walk Avery to the grass. Avery became very agitated in the Jeep, and I found the first turnoff in 20 miles of narrow rural roads. He peed for like two minutes in the grass beside the road. Good dog. I jumped the gun on the turn for the vineyard and turned into some poor guy's driveway. With my inept backing skills, he suggested I just off-road in his yard. I still struggled backing up without jackknifing the trailer. I arrived at Landry Vineyards at 5 p.m. Their tasting room closed at 5.30 p.m. Uh, Mr. Landry drove me to the tasting room from the RV parking spot, and I bought a bottle of sweet wine. Unlike most wineries that I had stopped to since, Landry Vineyards had their own grapes surrounding the winery. They said it was all right to run my generator in something that is not unusual for Harvest Hosts. My RV was the only one at the winery when I visited. Our Tab 320S had 11 gallons of fresh water, 19 gallons of gray, and 8 gallons for black water. Gray water is the soapy water from showers and sinks, and black water is discharged from the toilet. After my first night, which showed I did ditches, dishes, it showed I had two-thirds of fresh water left, and gray was one-third full. I had a five-gallon collapsible water carriers in the Jeep that I used to fill the drinking water tank when not using city water. Chapter 4, Rookie Mistakes. Avery and I entered Texas. At one of the fuel stops, I saw pinkish-brown fluid dripping down under the hood onto the ground. I first hypothesized that it was transmission fluid. I drove to the nearest Jeep dealership. They looked 
and said it was coolant fluid, I had improperly secured the coolant cap and it bubbled out. Dirt from the ground or engine made the coolant fluid look brown. I bought more coolant there and refilled what I'd spilled out. I was checking all the levels after the smoking clutch problem and did not properly secure the coolant cap. Within 20 minutes, Avery and I were on our way. The Terra Winery was about 230 miles to the west in Texas. I missed the first turn off to the entrance of the winery, which was on a very steep hill. The rural road just went on and on. I tried to make a U-turn on the dirt connecting road, which also had a steep slope. I jackknifed the trailer and the clutch smoked in 2H, two-wheel drive, or the 4H four-wheel drive high. I tried to decouple the trailer, but the trailer hitch handle was too close to the Jeep Wrangler's spare tire on the rear to drop the jack. It was also impossible to remove the spare tire with the jack crank in that position. After two hours of struggle, I shifted with the with effort into 4L, four-wheel drive low. That was enough power to extract the Jeep and trailer heading in the wrong direction from the winery. Terra Winery called me to see why I was late, but never offered to help. When I called to tell them that I would not be coming, the lady was miffed. After that adventure, I had no appetite to try my luck at their steep driveway if I ever found a place to turn around. The ordeal taught me that there was very little room to put on our trailer wheel, and a gardening shovel would be handy to dig under the ground to slip on the jack wheel, which should be stowed while towing. Moreover, the jack crank is on the side of the tow vehicle, not the trailer. Thus, you have less room to crank the jack if its handle were on the trailer side, not the tow vehicle side. This makes it problematic to access the trunk while towing on with the Jeep Wrangler, whose trunk swings out like a passenger doors. In contrast, trunks on hatchbacks or sedans swing up. I wanted a flat RV park. I signed up for the RV membership program Passport America before departing. I found the log cabin RV park on Passport America's app, which charged $42 or $21 for Passport America members. Passport America gives half-off rates for select RV parks. These are usually not the nicest RV parks, but they are typically have full hookups, which are defined as city water, electricity, and sewer hookups. With our small tanks, I need to dump the gray and black tanks after four days anyways. The log cabin RV park proprietor got a bit upset when I asked about showers and she said they were shut down. I told her it was not a problem. I would take a shower in my RV. In the tab 320S, I had a sit-down shower and I used as little water as possible to conserve water and not use a gray tank. At least they had pull-throughs. She gave me a good tip when observing my rookie form. Check this side-to-side -side level before unhitching. That way you don't have, that way you can place the leveling blocks before the unhitching process. Janet, with the guidance of her dad, Tom, who owns a travel trailer, wrote this unhitching, rehitching checklist. Hopefully it will illustrate why having a hitch can be so time-consuming. Jana's rehitching checklist. Wheel on roll, camper to car. Raise tongue, place over ball. Lower tongue over ball. Lock it. Remove wheel and stow. Chains on. Safety release to carabiner. 
umbilical cord to Kurt Echo to car, check brake lights, turn signal lights, look underneath, make sure nothing is dragging, drive a short distance, get out and look again and make sure nothing dragging. Jana assumed that we would wheel the tab to the car. While that is possible on level concrete pads, in most cases pads were not concrete but dirt or gravel, in which case rolling the trailer by hand would be almost impossible. I usually just use the backup camera on the Jeep to get the ball under the raised trailer tongue. The log camp at RV park had so many burrs. In a minute of walking around, Avery had 60 burrs or nettles in his fur. I spent an hour cutting them out with scissors. My next Texas winery was flat. I was uh, the first RV to stop in two days according to their sign-in book. Because the owner's daughter's living quarters were right over my parking space, I did not ask to use the generator after the tasting. Avery was very distressed by the winery's horse. Oreo, the white and brown spotted horse, might have been the first horse Avery ever saw. I came across the problem of it being hard to release the tongue of the trailer when unhitching. I learned that the best thing to do was to slightly move the Jeep forward or reverse more easily. Chapter 5, Into the Desert. Avery and I did another 200-ish mile day at the AOK RV Park in Amarillo, Texas. By the time you reach Amarillo, it feels like you have arrived in the desert, especially with its gale force winds blowing sand. Avery was treated to more large animals there. They had emu, donkeys, llamas, and longhorn cows. I was tempted to visit Palo Verde State Park, but decided against it. The dictator of Texas, their elected governor, Greg Abbott, banned Louisiana residents in recent weeks who did not quarantine for 14 days. I wanted no interaction with the state government that would confine its neighbors in violation of the Interstate Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. The scrub desert scenery continued as I drove from Amarillo into New Mexico. Also, we started to gain elevation, and I found that I had to drive in third gear up the hills or the rig would lose speed. If I wanted to go 69 miles per hour uphill on the freeway, I needed to push the Jeep to 4,000 RPMs versus 25,000 RPMs that fourth gear could do on flatter ground at that speed. The altitude and heat caused the Jeep's tire pressure to rise. The cold pressure was supposed to be 36 pounds per square inch PSI. I found that the tires after driving had 45 PSI in New Mexico. I took three to four PSI off the tires to compensate for the heat and altitude in both the Jeep Wrangler and the traveled trailer. I had my first taste of cracker docking in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Cracker docking is camping in the parking lot of Cracker Barrel restaurants. New Mexico took the lockdown more seriously than Texas. Passport America was warning that many RV parks might be closed. I preferred to get free parking space after buying a good meal at Cracker Barrel. I think I paid $11 before tax for the entree. Like select Walmarts and Cabela's, Cracker Barrel was a national chain that welcomed RVers to stay overnight in their parking lot. Cracker Barrel had designated bus slash RV spots in the back of most restaurants. 
Cracker Barrels are much less busy than Walmart stores and rarer Cabela superstores. Moreover, with all restaurants doing takeout, it was even less busy than pre-pandemic days. I called ahead. The spaces did mostly fill up, although I was the first to arrive. Before 9 p.m., two conversion vans pulled up, as did two larger travel trailers. The downside of cracker docking is that folding chairs are frowned on and there's no water or electric hookups or even a dump station. Nevertheless, cracker docking is far preferable than sleeping in a noisy, stinky truck stop or rest area where grumpy teamsters are likely to scold RV travelers. Truckers must take mandatory Department of Transportation rest breaks and don't like the vacationer RVs taking their spaces in truck stops or even rest areas. I found it impossible to find a gas station bathroom in Albuquerque, New Mexico due to COVID-19 regulations. Really? Did the city government think people urinating and pooping in the streets was going to promote public health? I never tried it, but there wasn't any alternative for non-RVers who did not take their black water tank with them wherever they went. The ban on public restroom usage was covid idiocy at its worst. Carlsbad Cavern National Park was closed due to COVID-19 in May 2020, thus I drove by. Likewise, Traveler of the Four Corners was severely restricted due to a bad coronavirus outbreak in the Navajo Nation. Avery and I just drove through New Mexico. Chapter 6, Petrified Forest. Jana raved about her childhood visit to the Petrified Forest National Park. The Petrified Forest has ancient wood that has been replaced by minerals over many thousands of years. I first visited by driving through it pulling off at exit 311 and drove through its painted desert. Avery and I hiked the first trail, but turned around early because of the heat. We stopped and tried small hikes until the Blue Mesa, but skipped the one-mile hike. From then on, we made brief stops in the petrified forest side of the park because it was getting late in the day. I had read that the petrified forest gift shop, a private outfit just outside the park, had free RV spots. It was closed. There were signs marking the RV spots. The signs were adamant there was to be no tent camping. Many of the spots had electrical hookups, but were not operating. The competitor to the Petrified Forest gift shop, the Crystal Forest gift shop, across the street was open. They said I could stay there for free without electricity or $12 per night with electricity. I wanted a hike without Avery, who struggled more with the hot hikes than I did. If I could leave him in the travel trailer with the air conditioning on, I could make some longer desert hikes. The spots were all back in. To my surprise, I succeeded in backing into a space after about 10 minutes using the Jeep's backup camera. The AT&T signal at the Crystal Forest gift shop was too poor to get email or open a web page. I would have to drive closer to the freeway for those luxuries. I did the hike from the petrified forest to the Blue Mesa in the National Park while Avery chilled out in the air-conditioned trailer. Avery saved all his pooping and peeing for when I returned for lunch. I did have a floor diaper pee pad like the one he uses at home, but he refused to use it in the way that he did at home. I had to put rocks around the pee pad floor diaper so it would not blow around in the AC ventilation. I found some boondocking spots on the Bureau of Land Management BLM 
land near Flagstaff, Arizona, where a better cellular signal was promised. BLM land typically allows dispersed camping, boondocking for up to 14 days. Avery and I took the 120-mile trip the next day. In Flagstaff, Avery and I prepared for our trip to the south rim of the Grand Canyon. We bought drinking water, which we put in the five-gallon collapsible jugs at Walmart for 29 cents per gallon. On average, I use about three to four gallons of water per day off the grid, and I ran the generator when I needed air conditioning or power for my computer. I found a Flagstaff groomer who would give Avery a trim. Poodles need their hair cut every month or two because they don't shed. After three days of boondocking at Flagstaff, we were ready for the luxury of full hookup spots inside the south rim of the Grand Canyons National Park, which I had reserved weeks before. Chapter 7, Grand Canyon Highs and Lows. Avery and I departed the Walnut Grove National Monument outside of Flagstaff, Arizona, to the south rim of the Grand Canyon on June 5, 2020. I booked six nights of full hookups inside the park at the Mather Campground. This was by far my best RV spot of the entire trip. To be minutes away from the hikes and activities allowed me to see so much more than I had had I stayed outside the park. Nevertheless, silly COVID regulations kept me from doing laundry there, and I had to spend half a day to find a laundromat at another RV park in Williams, Arizona, instead of doing my laundry on site. Also, Mather's showers were closed for the COVID-19 restrictions, forcing me to shower inside the trailer. The first day, Avery and I visited the South Rim Trail of Time. I was moved to tears when I first saw the canyon. In many ways, my principal goal of the trip was achieved. We scouted the start of the Bright Angel Trail, which I would attempt the next morning. The Bright Angel Trail is rated 15.6 miles from the South Rim to the Colorado River. My Garmin Global Positioning System GPS watch said I was tw it was 20 miles. I moved very slowly compared to almost every other hiker I saw. I especially moved slowly down climbing from the rim, but I also had to pause on the climb up. I would pause whenever my watch said my heart rate was over 150 beats per minute. I packed out about 3 liters of water and was able to refill at the 1.5 mile mark three-mile mark and the Indian Garden. In addition to water, I packed a variety of calorific and salty snacks such as oatmeal, pies, nuts, corn nuts, and beef jerky. Without salty snacks, you risk neutropenia, a serious condition that prevents you from properly hydrating. Without calories such on such a long hike, you will bonk, as distance runners like to say. Bonking is tiring substantially due to lack of calorie intake in a multi-hour endurance challenge. I have both bonked and suffered neutropenia when I ran the Washington DC Marine Corps and Philadelphia marathons respectively. I started just after dawn and it was just over 11 hours before I returned to the South Rim after touching the Colorado River. I started with many layers and took most of them off into my pack after the first hour. Towards the end of the day, I put some more layers on. The next day, I took care of my laundry crisis outside of the park and Avery and I hiked the small hikes from the trail of time to the closed east entrance. The following day, I hiked the west side of the rim from the start of the Bright Angel Trail to the Hermit's Trailhead alone. Because the buses were not running due to COVID-19, I had to, to do the round trip, doubling my official miles from 7.6 to 15.2 miles. Nevertheless, my watch showed the round trip to be about 20 miles. I alternated between 
sweating with my wool sweater or on or having chilly arms with my polo shirt only on top. When I got back to the car, I drank a cold soda from the cooler and teeth-chattering chills set in. Running the Jeep heater on full blast helped cure this unnecessary bout of hypothermia. That was a lesson I would not soon forget. Steer clear of cold drinks after a long, cold endurance challenges. The next day was another recovery day. Avery and I did small segments of the South Rim Trail that we had missed and scouted the South Kaibab, which also descends to the Colorado River. The people on the South Rim were very scarce outside of the Bright Angel Trailhead and the Visitor Center. Most of the paved trails along the South Rim were empty. The preferred way to get to the trailhead was by bus, but of course the buses were not running due to the pandemic precaution. On June 10th, 2021, I hiked the South Kaibab Trail from the trailhead on the South Rim to the boat beach on the Colorado River. The round trip distance was 17.2 miles according to my GPS watch, but only 13.6 miles officially. The distance discrepancy was 1.5 miles one way to Ua Point by GPS was versus 0.9 miles official distance for Cedar Ridge. The distance was 2.2 two miles by GPS and 1.5 miles officially. Skeleton Point was 3.0 miles officially and 4.14 on the GPS. Tonto Tip of Junction was 4.5 miles officially and 5.73 miles on GPS. Finally, Boat Beach was 6.8 miles official and 8.2 on my GPS. I packed out four liters of water. I filled two liters at Boat Beach and drank all six liters on the round trip. There were no clouds and little shade. During the heat of the day, I rested in the shade even when my heart rate was low. The views were magnificent and I was in no danger of finishing after dark. Thus, there was no rush. The only annoyance was young hikers stopping to ask if I was all right when I stopped. In fact, I was fresher and stronger for this hike than I was for the previous two long hikes in the Grand Canyon. When I got back to the travel trailer, the gray water packed up in the shower. It was time to dump both the black and gray tanks. Chapter 8, Going into the Valley of the Shadow of Death. I returned to my Harvest Hose tour after leaving the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Avery and I stayed in an industrial district of Kingman, Arizona at the Desert Diamond Distillery. This was my first spirits tour since Jan and I visited the Oban factory close to two decades earlier in Oban, Scotland. The husband and wife lived on site in the industrial park by the airport and had been operating the micro distillery for 12 years. The next day, Avery and I went to the Hoover Dam, which was closed to all visitors. Lake Mead was open, but how could it compare to the South Pacific anchorages that I had sailed in prior summers? We drove to Las Vegas, Nevada. I found no place to boondock in the Las Vegas Strip, which was partially if not fully closed for the pandemic the boondock on the free roam app was closed instead we drove out to the desert about 60 miles northwest of las vegas where there was some blm land to boondock on i was debating whether to drive to california or visit death valley i entered the lottery to climb half dome in yosemite national park but did not know if i would win after i lost my first lottery death valley seemed the more interesting choice since I had the time. I had my license plate shipped to Levining, California on the east side of Yosemite National Park. My temporary tags expired after a month. 
Death Valley National Park had stunning salt flats, sand dunes, and multicolored flats as I drove to the lowest elevation on land in the world. All the electrical campsites were closed. Avery had to be carried for the, all the short hikes because of the heat. The shade temperature at 2 p.m. on June 14, 2020 was 98 degrees Fahrenheit. The gift shop cashier recommended that camping at higher elevations outside the park would be much more pleasant. I boondocked in Beatty, Nevada at a site with a good cellular signal and a lot of flies. The next day, Avery and I visited the ghost town of Rhyolite. In 1907, during the gold rush, Rhyolite had 5,000 to 8,000 people. By 1920, the population was 14. While in Rhyolite, a Nye County, Nevada deputy asked me if I was the camper who called 911. I told him I was not. Avery and I crossed in and out of Nevada and California on our back roads 130 mile drive to Levine in California. We were mostly in the valley, but the mountains ahead were capped with snow. I thought the first boondocking spot on June Lake was not actually legal with signs all over referring to Los Angeles County water. I hiked all around this area for a long time before abandoning it. I tried another stop, but decided it was not advisable and got a space at Mono RV Park. It was full hookups with laundry in town for $36 per night. Avery did not like the crowded RV parks and barked like crazy. While in town, I talked to an outfitter who said that the east entrance to Yosemite was closed as it is for most of the year. He said that that entrance to the Tioga Pass would open on Monday. That was the same day that my license plate was due at the Levining Post Office. I had booked a seven-day pass beginning on June 18th for Yosemite Park, not for the Half Dome Cables climb. That was four days away. I wanted to find a boondocking spot before my temporary spot at Mono RV Park ran out on Monday. I found a boondocking spot 120 feet off of Mono Lake. It was just east of the volcano crater. Avery and I hiked the rim that next day. Half Dome. June 16, 2020 was a good day. My license plate for the Jeep came to the post office, and I won the lottery for the Half Dome cables on June 17, 2020. On June 16, I drove over the Tioga Pass. Trucks with larger travel trailers than mine struggled to ascend faster than 10 miles per hour. There were dust storms blowing off the sides of the road. Based on my Half Dome lottery win, which superseded my seven-day pass, I was granted early access to Yosemite, but my last day would be June 22nd. I had booked a Passport America RV full hookup spot in Greeley Hill, California, which was well west of Yosemite. It was the closest electric spot that I could find to the National Park. I was convinced that Avery needed a climate-controlled trailer for our long hikes, I ended up staying there for eight nights at the Passport America rate of $30 per day. Unfortunately, the commute to Yosemite was an excruciating one hour and 15 minutes each way of bare knuckle driving through tight mountain roads. The next day was my lottery day on the Half Dome Cables. Half Dome is a striking rounded mountain presiding over Yosemite Valley at an elevation of 8,846 feet. There were two routes that you could take from Happy Isle, the Happy Isles bus stop. The bus stop was closed. The official round trip distance was 14.2 miles. I took the shortest mist route, which passed by the Vernal and Nevada Falls. The longer but drier route 
is via the John Muir Trail, which had an official round trip distance of 16.5 miles from Happy Isles. In the Upper Pines, I had to backtrack half a mile when I set down my trekking pole and did not pick it up. I found it, but I added to the distance and time. I started walking just before dawn and got to Subdome early. At Subdome, at the Subdome steps, a ranger gave us a safety check and checked to see that we were on the lottery list. 300 permits were issued for the cables each day. The cables are steel cables that allow you to safely ascend the last few hundred yards of the dome. If you cannot use the cables, then half dome, the half dome summit is impossible for all but the most technically advanced climbers. In 2019, you had a 10% chance of winning the cables lottery on the weekend and a 20% chance of winning it on the weekday. There was at least one young couple that snuck around the steps and eventually summited on the cables. I climbed the subdome, the rounded mountain top underneath the half dome on the stairs until the stairs disappeared with no other directions given. There I was for 20 minutes until some people passed me and showed me the route to the top. I did not want to be stumbling over a cliff. At the top of the subdome, the cables up the half dome looked vertical. They were more like a ladder than a staircase that I envisioned. I swore climbing the cables was insane, and I texted Janet to tell her that I would not go up them. I believe that you should turn around when you find the risk too great. Turning around at the foot of the cables was the right thing to do. Nobody except the hiker really cares if you completed a peak or not. There's no glory or adulation in bagging a peak except in the mind of the hiker climber. You only have to one life to live. The, the acclaimed 8,000-meter mountain climber Ed Beasters frequently wrote, Going up the mountain is optional, but going down is mandatory. I had a snack and took video of other people climbing and descending the cables. When I got closer to the cables, the trek up and down them seemed more doable. I put on my gloves and, as directed, I left my trekking pole at the bottom of the cables. With the pandemic and the littering aspect of leaving one's gloves, the tradition of leaving gloves and ascending and descending the cables that can tear up ungloved hands was over when I climbed. There were no spare gloves waiting for the unprepared. Nevertheless, I bet a descending climber would be happy to gift a pair of cheap work or gardening gloves to the ill-prepared. We could not leave our packs at the bottom and were required to wear them to the top. The chipmunks and squirrels in Yellowstone were very aggressive and feeding the aggressive disease-carrying rodents was discouraged with many signs over all the park. A chipmunk would likely chew through your pack if it was unattended for a minute. I climbed the cables quickly and only looked at the next handhold or foothold. I never looked around to see my exposure. My heart rate pounded at 120 beats per minute as I passed many people ascending. I moved fast to make the ordeal shorter. I was atop Half Dome at 1 p.m. on a sunny 65-degree day. I spent half an hour taking pictures and making sure that I did not visit a false peak. Was the true peak over the sheer face of the dome, or was it far behind the face? I covered all the base. I descended with less trouble than ascending, but there were spots where the granite was worn slick, even when it was 100% dry. Never attempt half-domes cables if there's any moisture on the rock. The added difficulty of the cables is that you must pass people going in your direction or going in the other direction. Thus, the cables are not a solitary exercise. They are a traffic negotiation. The hike through the Little Yosemite Valley is a pleasant shaded hike through the woods. 
I returned via the mist route and arrived at Vernal, the Vernal Falls restrooms after 4 p.m. Since I arrived after 4 p.m., I did not violate the one-way COVID-19 rule that you could not ascend the steps that were below me. If I was at those steps earlier, the pandemic rules required that I hike the Muir Trail on the way down if the hour was between 8 and 4 p.m. My GPS watch said my round trip from the car was 20 miles, not the 14.2 official distance. Perhaps I should have taken the Muir Trail because my upper thighs were getting stiff from the descent of the stairs. The soreness would persist in the days following. I arrived at the RV after the 1.25 hour drive just before dark. Avery held his pee and poop all day. Avery was alone in the tiny RV from 4 a.m. to 8 p.m. So as I mentioned in the last podcast, uh, I was able to visit uh, the slow boat after two years of not being able to visit it in New Caledonia. It seems like it's in good shape. We'll see uh, how it does when we finally splash. I'm inclined to not take on crew next year uh, until I have a little bit more clarity about the travel restrictions. Anytime there's a quarantine uh, that is like, like a mandatory boat quarantine or hotel quarantine, it just makes it harder to have crew. Um, I do think that Queensland is going to drop their hotel quarantine for boaters who get the what is it, safe haven travel exemption next month. That's my understanding of the regulations. But, you know, the other problem is it's very hard to get the safe haven travel exemption. Um, you know, I go into that on a video on the Slow Boat Sailing channel and how I think is kind of a real step backward into kind of banana republic land, uh, the way that they're doing things right now. I, I do hope that there will be tourist visas Right now, you basically have to be an Australian resident, a student. I think they're opening up to Singapore and Korean tourists at uh, soon, or they have. So maybe they'll open up to a larger group of passports. So, you know, in terms of my travel plans, um, probably, maybe, I don't know. Uh, I would say 70% chance that by May that they're going to open up to tourism and we'll be able to sail to Queensland. Otherwise, I would say that, uh, you know, I'm planning for all eventualities. So we may just go around Australia this season uh, to Papua New Guinea. Uh, We'll even consider going all the way to to South Africa if that's necessary, just to get get around. Uh, But, you know, my preference would be to stop somewhere between Australia and Malaysia, I think. Uh, But I don't know. I'm just looking at all possibilities. We prefer to to dry store our boat. I think there's just less chances of problems that way. You don't have to worry about dock lines. You don't have to worry about storms. Uh, It's not perfect, but it's, I think it's better for a kind of a long-term part-time around the world voyage to do that. So possibly in Queensland, um, it's uncertain if there's any facilities in Indonesia, uncertain if there's any facilities in Singapore. I it's uncertain if there are available facilities in Malaysia. I think there probably are some in Thailand, but that's quite far out of the way. And basically, you're going on a Southeast Asian tour instead of a around-the-world tour if you're doing that. So I'm not 
100% where we're going to go. We're definitely, if the border is open with New Caledonia, if I'm able to get into the country this summer, uh, I'm going to sail the slow boat out of New Caledonia to a different location. And the plan is to dry store it. But where exactly, we're still trying to work that out. Um, and, you know, the visa situation, the, the boating situation, the permit situation is always changing uh, with these stupid COVID travel restrictions. So the idiocy of the the world governments, uh, and I'm not just picking on Australia and New Zealand, although I think they have been particularly egregious uh, in terms of the way that they messed over the, the South Pacific cruising community and all the South Pacific nations, essentially, because they've set the tone and really collapsed the tourism industry for all of the South Pacific, not just their own nation. Uh, in what they are doing. But hopefully that'll change. Uh, hopefully, you know, with the boosters and with the COVID pills, in addition to the monoclonal antibodies that are available as treatments, you know, that COVID's just going to be a much less deadly disease and it's going to be harder and harder for governments to justify undemocratic totalitarian policies and closing their borders and all this other USSR nonsense that we have put up with for the last two years uh, with the COVID pandemic. It'll be harder to justify that if the infection fatality rate goes down from 0.85%, which I've estimated in some of my papers, uh, versus down to below the flu level because there are if you've got a vaccine, if you've got treatments that are highly effective, then the fatality rate is not going to justify destroying everybody's life to get a COVID zero policy. All right, I'm Linus Wilson. Have some fun on the water. Bye-bye.